This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A year ago, a law went into effect that allows Coloradans with terminal illnesses to end their own lives. Coloradans like Kathy Myers, who suffered from COPD, a progressive lung disease. Every day I wake up, I don't want to be awake. It hurts. It's painful. This spring, Myers became one of the first Coloradans to take advantage of the state's End-of-Life Options Act. It was not an easy journey, says her husband, Herb. He and Kathy met when they were about three years old, and Herb joins me. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Uh, Kathy was speaking with Nine News in that clip last January. How how is it to hear her voice? Uh, This morning on the way in, I heard it, and uh, I got choked up. It's good to hear her voice and all this, so at the same time, a little uh, a little hard. A little hard. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. actually had approached Nine News back in January. Uh, you say you're not someone who likes media attention, but you were desperate. Why? Because she wanted it and I couldn't find it. Um, once the law passed, uh, on the Monday after the governor signed it in, I started making phone calls. And nobody knew anything about it. Um, and it was just a big roadblock. That is finding a doctor yes. who could prescribe the medication. Yes. This was uncharted territory. Yeah. I figured, you know, I'll make a call to the state. They'll give me a list of doctors and uh, I'll have it. No such list existed. Uh, I, it still doesn't. Uh, it's easier now, but it's not easy. So in trying to find a doctor, you went uh, essentially to the press and well, that eventually worked. Yes, I went to uh, – I called Tom Martino and uh, he – Has a turn- radio program. Yes. Yeah. Um, figured, well, maybe he's got somebody listening that could help and he didn't but he got us hooked up with Nine News and they came over and did three interviews. And what doctor came forward? Well, I can't say his name because he has gotten out of it. Uh, the number two doctor retired, and then after that, he had so much difficulty in finding the number two doctor, because it takes two doctors, uh, that he gave up out of frustration. Two doctors have to sign off that the patient is terminal and qualifies under the specifics of the law. Yes. And uh, it, it remains difficult, I understand, to find doctors. Yes. It's getting easier, but it's still not easy. Um I left my job in January. Um, My employer was kind enough to let me have the next three months off. And I spent a lot of time on the computer and a lot of time on the phone. Uh, Compassion and Choices is a great reference for people wanting to know more about this, but uh, they don't give you doctors' names either. This is an advocacy group that supported the passage of the law in Colorado. What was the conversation like with the doctors who eventually signed on? What questions did they have for you and your wife? Well, they came out. uh, Well, the first doctor came out uh, the day he called and he examined her and he spent probably a good hour, hour and a half with her, talking to her, uh, finding out her wishes and making sure that she was competent to make this choice. That is part of the determination. Yes. Is this person able to make this decision for him or herself? And uh, this doctor clearly decided that that your wife was was capable of making that decision. Yes. Uh, The second doctor then has to sign off on it Mm -hmm. and eventually did. Were you both on the same page 
about this journey? Had you decided as a couple this was the right course? Or were there times you were at odds? No. Uh, back in the old days, uh, you know, it was always we would pull the plug for each other if somebody got sick and was going to be in a vegetative state. And then when this came up, we were both supporters of it. Uh, you both voted for it? Yes. Yes. Uh, you also have kids. You raised three, three kids together. Mm-hmm. How how big was the decision in the family? Was that just between husband and wife? Did you involve the larger family? No. Last Christmas, we all got together, and uh, that's when she told her intentions to all the kids, although I think they probably knew it ahead of time, and uh, they were okay. I mean, they saw what her quality of life was and how she was struggling, so none of them could say no. As you said, you took time off of work, mm-hmm. essentially the last three months of your wife's life. Yes. And you did a lot of research. You eventually both decided on the medication that she would use yes. when she decided it was time. Tell, tell us about the drug. Well, second all is what she used. Uh, it's very expensive, but it's very gentle and very quick, or at least it was for her. Now, the other drug uh, in my research They'd had problems with. Uh, it's a morphine cocktail. And it's uh, morphine and three or four other drugs that I cannot pronounce. So we decided on the second all, and we got the call that the pre- prescription was ready to be picked up. And uh, I went to Colorado Springs to pick it up. Let's talk about her quality of life to that point. What was it like, and what, how did it lead her to make these decisions? Well, she was diagnosed with it probably 10 or 12 years ago. This is COPD. Yes. And we ended up buying a house that everything was on one level because she couldn't do steps anymore. And then it just constantly got worse and worse. Uh, She was a very compassionate person and volunteered for Colorado Pug Rescue. And once the pugs got to be too much for her, she went to kittens. And then sadly, the kittens got to be too much for her. And uh, she never left more than – she left the house maybe two or three times in the last two years. So animals were her great passion. After the kids grew up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The kids came first. And after she could no longer take care of animals, that was a real reduction in her quality of life. Well, yeah. And probably a year, year and a half before is when she had to give those up. So her quality of life, it was basically – as long as her air tube would go from the concentrator, uh, 50 feet maybe. So her life was down to about two or three rooms of the house. Uh, she loved her gardens and couldn't do that anymore. And she spent most of the time in bed. And as we heard in the introduction, had really lost the will to live. No, I don't think so. Mm. You know, she she lost the... Uh, the battle with her disease. She would have loved to have kept on living and seen our grandson grow up and uh, keep doing all the things she did, but uh, that just wasn't in the cards for her. You have talked uh, in the past about the relief she felt simply in having oh, yeah. the medication on yes. hand. So you talked about the drug that you chose and, and the mere possession of it, not, not its use. Yeah, uh, just, resulted in a shift in her. Oh yeah, she, her spirits lifted. Uh, she actually put on four pounds, and uh, you know that shocked me. Uh, so for the time we had it, and it was tucked away in a safe place, 
she felt very good. She knew that she didn't have to go through the very end. Yeah. Say more about why you think just having the medication results perhaps in, in, a, in a shift. Uh, just knowing that it's there, knowing that you don't have to go through the very end stages, knowing that uh, you're in control and knowing that it's going to be, for her, a very easy end. Not everybody gets that. Talk to me about the decision to um, use the medication. So it has to be self-administered. That's yes. part of the law. Yeah. And when did you know the time was right? When did she know? Um, we had talked about it the weekend before. And then the Saturday night before, I got some uh, sports drinks because it's very bitter. And so she decided which one she wanted to use. And uh, the next day, about uh, three, or, 3 or 4 o'clock, she called her hospice nurse. And her hospice nurse had offered to be there in case there was a problem and because they didn't know how this was going to work either. Uh, when she came in, she told Kathy, I've heard this can take several days. And uh, so they didn't even know about it. I mean, the confusion around this is astronomical. Uh, people just don't know what's going to happen with it. I'm curious when you got a hold of the drug, did it, does insurance pay for that? Or do you, no. <laughs> so that's out of pocket. Okay. Yes. And, and tell us more about this drug and just even the, the brass tacks of pr preparing it. Okay. Well, it's uh, 100 gel caps. And you have to open them up and uh, dig the powder out. And I thought it would be very easy. Uh, but I tried with a razor blade and they were crumbling. So I ended up learning to roll them between my fingers to break the seal and then it would come apart. And then the powder's packed in pretty tight and I had to scrape them with a, a, a drill bit to get the powder out. I didn't want to lose any of it because I didn't want it to... Uh, not work and have her end up in worse shape. What was going through your mind at that time? Uh, I was still having trouble believing it. You know, when she called her hospice nurse is when I, I really thought maybe this is going to happen. There was still that maybe in my mind. And I mixed it and I put it on a little, she had a hospital bed there in the front room. And I put the bottle on the tray in front of her. And it sat there for a while. So I put the top back on and I thought maybe she's not going to and then she told me to take it off and uh, she drank it down very quickly because you have to. If you fall asleep before you get it all in, it may not work. And uh, our youngest daughter was on one side of her bed holding her hand and I was on the other side. And she laid back on her pillow and within about two minutes, the grip on my hand let up. And I was kind of watching to see if there was any kind of distress. And she never tightened down on my hand. And that would be a normal thing if you're in pain would be to grip. And she never did that. She just laid back until her grip loosened. And uh, I looked up and I never saw her take another breath. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, on what is roughly the anniversary of the passage of Colorado's End of Life Options Act, we're speaking with Herb Myers of Aurora about he and his wife Kathy's journey uh, as Kathy sought to end her own life, uh, she suffered from a progressive lung disease, and she was one of the first Coloradans to take advantage of this new law. Others have reported not not so serene ends. Yes. Yeah. Um, mostly with the uh, morphine cocktail. Um, there have been problems with it. It does work, but it's not uh, 
the peaceful kind of end that Kathy got. But what, Kathy, what have you heard that can go wrong? Um, convulsions, uh, stomach upset. Um, now, I, I did read about burning of the mouth, but uh, I haven't heard any more about that. Um, so it's not as smooth and easy as the second all, but it's a quarter of the price. Hmm. What would you do to make this law better? I think the law is pretty good the way it stands. Uh, the only thing I would want to see is some kind of a, oh, a provision for Alzheimer's patients because when they're within six months, they can no longer make the decision. And if that – my father died of Alzheimer's and my brother died of complications from AIDS. So I've seen a couple really nasty deaths and uh, Kathy's gave me a lot of comfort in the fact that she didn't have to go through those things. But something for Alzheimer's patients because when they can still make the decision, their health is not bad enough to are, actually take it. Are you in communication with other families that have questions about this? Have you found yes. yourself in, in a way the – De facto expert in, in some regards. Well, I'm sure no expert, but uh, I've had oh, about 10 families contact me and, uh, you know, just with questions. Uh, most of them are looking for a doctor. And well, I, I want to go back to that. Names. Right, because you, you say that it's still really difficult to yes. find a physician. Why do you think that is? Um, well, it goes everything – it goes against everything that doctors are normally taught. And so there's a lot of hesitation on their part. And uh, I was at one hospice conference and – one of the attorneys for the hospice said, we're waiting to see who gets sued first before they got involved with it. And the protections in the law are pretty good. You're not going to have any legal complications. And if somebody has moral uh, conflicts with it, I definitely would not them to want them to be involved in it. I don't want to force this on anybody. Right. And there's no obligation that doctors participate in no. the law. You know, critics of the law had several arguments. One was religious, that it's, mm -hmm. it's up to God when life should end. Mm -hmm. Another came from some in the disability rights community, that it could be a slippery slope. The law might be misused to end uh, a life that others deemed wasn't worth living. Was there any point in this process where you thought, gosh, this could be exploited? Uh, with any law? Somebody will find a way around it. So I'm sure there's ways to do something to do something bad with it. But I think its intent and the way it's gone so far has been good. Nor, as you described the process, is it easy? No. Or fast to go through? No. Uh -huh. And it still isn't. But it's better than what it was a year ago. Um, do you have any regrets? Are there days you wish that Kathy had not ended her life? <laughs> well, I wish he had been healthy, but uh, my big regret was actually not letting the pharmacist mix it up. Uh, he had offered to, but I didn't think she – I wasn't sure she would use it. And I didn't know what the shelf life was once it was mixed. So I spent an hour and a half mixing it up and I could have spent that hour and a half with her. Hmm. Thank you for sharing your story. Sure. Herb Meyer's late wife, Kathy – ended her life in April under Colorado's End of Life Options Act. The law went into effect a year ago this month. <music> the 
Big Head Todd and the Monsters formed in 1987 after Todd Parkmore, Brian Nevin, and Rob Squires began making music together as students at Columbine High School. The band developed a loyal fan base, and 30 years later now, they are still going strong. Big Head Todd and the Monsters have a new album, New World Horizon, and here to talk about it is singer and guitarist Todd Park Moore. Welcome to the program. Good day, eh? <laughs> this is your 11th studio album. You've described it as, quote, pop guitar rock. What do you mean by that? Well, that's those words are pretty concise. Uh, pop music, guitar-driven pop music, rock music. Uh, the reason I describe it that way is because many of our past records, especially the last you know, five to seven years, have been very blues-oriented. Yeah. Is that a sound you're trying to get away from, do you think? Um, sure. Yes. <laughs> no, I, of course I'll never get away from the blues. But, uh, yeah, I think it's a very conscious uh, you know, decision to bring out more of the pop rock aspect of our group. Why? Uh, to make money. <laughs> to gain notoriety uh you know it's uh I, I think it's important to always try to have a direction and uh it's I, I like to think every everything we do is a bit of a surprise to somebody you know uh hopefully we're not writing the same record over and over again yeah but but you know fans sometimes have different expectations you know uh, do you find that that the fans are willing to evolve with you? Sure. No, fans are way ahead of me. Yeah? Sure. That's a nice feeling. I mean, I think there are a lot of acts that say, gosh, our fans want the same old stuff, you know? No, I I think fans are, music fans are are looking for good music. They're interested in wanting to be turned on by by something great. Why is that pop right now? Why is it pop? Yeah. Um, well, I, I guess I use the word pop in a different way. I just, I, I use it to refer to the song structure themselves, you know, which is just verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus. You know? I, I think of Damaged One uh-huh. from the new album as something of a classic pop song. Yeah, it's a straight pop song. Well, why don't we hear it from the new okay. album? It's almost got a country pop feel. It is. It's country pop, that one. <laughs> Very catchy. I can hear a bit of pedal steel guitar in the background. A little bit, yes. Do you listen to much country music? No, I don't. I mean, I, I, I listen to old country. I like Johnny Cash and, you know, all that kind of thing, but, but not much contemporary country, no. Talk to me about what this song means, the damaged one. Uh, you know, uh, my my subject matter throughout my career, but especially recently, is about conflict and uh, how that relates to intimacy and pleasure. Uh, I kind of look at the whole brain as conflict, and uh, uh, the other things are all part of a conflict 
part of it, but it's not recognized. Uh, so I enjoy exploring that uh, in, you know, whether it's about talking about relationships or the world generally. That's so heady. Okay, let's see. I want to break that apart. So conflict. I guess first off, uh, when you're together for decades, is there much conflict in a band? Does Big Head Todd and the Monsters have to conflict to work through? Um, yeah, that's that's an interesting question. No, not necessarily. I think um, human beings work best when they can work cooperatively, uh, when they can look out for each other's interests, when they listen to each other. Those aren't typically part of human activity, though. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I feel like you're reflecting the the world maybe a little bit there right now. I don't know. I think every every human being is fundamentally conflict-bound. And yet out of that, you write a catchy pop song. It's a nice balance, Todd. Yeah. Well, <laughs> my job is to give pleasure. <laughs> uh, and hopefully uh, insight comes from that, comes out of that. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Todd Park Moore. He is a lead singer and guitarist of Big Head Todd and the Monsters, uh, formed in 1987 after they met... Uh, the band did, as students at Columbine High School, and they've got a new album. It's called New World Horizon. I love the cover art for this, cool. by the way. It's well, like thank a, you. It's like an uh, abandoned sort of desert scape, and there's a piece of odd playground equipment in the middle of it. It looks like it. It's an optical illusion. It's just a, like a pinball coming down in the middle of the desert, like a giant pinball. How much control do you get over the look of an album? Um, I, that was my idea. Oh, it was? Yeah. I kind of worked it out with the artist, and uh, we did the photo shoot and uh, built the model. <laughs> I didn't personally build it, but yeah, I was, I was kind of integral to this, to this one, so I'm glad you like it. When you started out, people weren't buying music on iTunes. Uh, they were buying, I suppose, in addition to maybe... CD singles. Mm-hmm. CDs had just arrived. Okay. Uh, and that maybe you thought more about the craft of an album and people listening to a full album. Mm-hmm. Have you had to adapt, I don't know, even your perception of what an album is because the market is so different now? Yeah, I have. But on the other hand, I, there's still uh, albums do something for fans of a band. It, it, they, it marks the life of a band, really. So I think... Uh, albums are still important uh, for a band like me, even though I know what you're saying about it, they're not important to the to the market so much because it's all about singles now. But. Yeah, I mentioned your loyal fan base. Uh, the band is known for hosting musical cruises for fans. Uh-huh. And this past September, you did this in Italy. I think there's a Caribbean cruise set for March. You told one interviewer, "We're stuck with our fans for a week on a small boat." Yeah. Do you like that? I do. It's led to some incredible friendships. And um, it's one of those things where everybody has such an important, great time that it really spills over into a lot of other areas. And I think it's been really good for our career as well. I presume you perform on these cruises. Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, But then are you just walking around the boat like as the Rock stars? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of fun things to do. (laughs) You get over that really fast. It's just, uh, you know, whether it's checking out a local town or hanging out on the beach. I mean, we all 
have a great time doing it. Gosh, there's a part of me that would want to just retreat to my stateroom at a certain point. That does like, happen. I can't do people anymore. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> uh, you have a lot of fans in Colorado, and uh, they look forward to seeing you perform at Red Rocks nearly every summer. I've read that you've played Red Rocks 19 times. Is that right? I don't know that it's right. I don't. I haven't kept track of the number. You've lost count, in other words. Is. I've never kept track of that number. Huh. Do you have memories of going to Red Rocks as a young person? Sure, yes. Who did you see there? I saw you two there. That was my first concert. I was 16 years old, the Under a Bloody Red Sky. Oh, the uh, one that became the, 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 the famous, famous video. Yes. All those meteorological conditions yeah. leading to that kind of misty. It was a failure of a show in a lot of ways. I mean, from the sense of it was so, it basically got canceled. And then they decided to do it at the last minute. And you were there. Uh, I was there. It says something about you. Maybe there's a certain humility in this, Todd, that you don't count the number of times you've been at Red Rock. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the acts I, I interview, you know, real like make a tally of that stuff. Oh, yeah. Okay. Why don't we hear another song from Big Head Todd and the Monsters' latest album, New World Horizon. This is the title track. to say that sounds more like a classic big head todd big head todd song <laughs> okay tell me about this um you know the, the the music of this is an old gospel song i first heard it uh on a charlie Patton recording and uh you know so it's about 100 years old the recording i had and uh the the song of his was uh jesus is gonna make my dying bed or jesus is a dying bed maker ah <gasps> Um, but I, um, I just kind of wrote some guitar riffs and, uh, some lyrics that I'd, I'd been working on for a while actually just kind of fit into it. And so that's, that's the story of the song. It's, you know, basically a new world is rising, but, but the old world will fight you till your dying day. You've described described yourself as a Charlie Patton freak. Oh yeah. Tell us about Charlie Patton just a bit. Um, well, He's sort of the grandfather of rock and roll in a lot of ways. Uh, John Fogarty bought his tombstone. Um, he was uh, a Mississippi bluesman around the turn of the century into the 40s. Uh, he had his throat slit a few times. A few times? Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was said that um, you could hear him from a half a mile away. His voice was really powerful. And... Uh, he had an incredibly grainy, powerful voice. His racial origins are uncertain. He looks kind of like the guy from Mad Magazine. You know the what's that guy? Is that Alfred, Alfred, Alfred e. Newman? Newman? Yeah, he kind of has okay. that look. <laughs> uh, but uh, I've always just been astounded by by those recordings. I'm glad you mentioned voice. His voice in, in that case. But uh, how have you felt about your own voice over the years? Has it changed? Um, very slightly. I think I've. I've improved my range over the years. I've learned to sing a little bit better. Uh, how, I, how have you done that? Like lessons or just, is that just... Just learning how to take belt. care of yourself, to warm up properly. Uh, you know, music is about warming up and doing things incrementally. Uh, I warm up very slowly. 
Uh, what do your warm ups sound like? Uh, I just kind of work my way through and get up there eventually. Create a little vocal <laughs> fry almost. Yeah. Uh, back to the blues for a bit. What what drew you to the blues? Because you, you've done some side projects. Yeah, blues club. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, sure. Yeah, I've always been drawn to the blues. You know, I I grew up in Littleton, Colorado. Uh, that's not culturally blues central. <laughs> um, but there was a great uh, used record store called Wax Tracks. Uh, oh, yeah. There was a couple others. Uh, Offbeat Music was the one that was in Littleton. Um, and uh, the lady there just turned me on to, to blues records. I would just buy them by the cover, you know. And uh, I just enjoyed the discovery of it so much. Do you remember the first blues you heard? That well, kind of Ray your world? Charles. It was the first uh, experience, really. I'd gotten a Genius of Ray Charles uh, record at a garage sale. Before we go, I want to go back to money. Yeah, because <laughs> you, you talked about evolution being uh-huh. also part of the bottom line. Um, I was sort of kidding. Sort of. Okay, yeah. I was, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. That has to be thought of at least. Well, I mean, you're, right? we're, we're in a functioning business, so it is important. Yeah. Um, luckily for us, uh, because I, I, one of my criticisms about our culture is, is that it's a business, and uh, I think that uh, we should talk about that. But um, you know, for us, we just have to make our fans happy. Th- that's the big the big difference between us and. Had we been st- on a major label throughout our career, we'd been making lawyers and A and R people and record execs happy. Mm. Uh, that's that's a big difference. You've been together, Big Head Dodd and the Monsters, for thirty years. Same lineup, though. Keyboard player Jeremy Lawton joined the band in two thousand four, I think. Uh, do you look at a band like the Rolling Stones? They're all in their seventies, you know, and say we're just getting started. Uh, I don't feel that way about the Rolling Stones. Like, <laughs> but about yourself? I feel that about myself and our band, yes. Um, there are many more years and decades to come. Uh, I'm not sure about that either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think so. You know, we, we, we all love what we do more than we ever have. And um, so I, I hope it continues as, as long as I'm able to do it. Todd Parkmore is the singer and guitarist for Big Head Todd and the Monsters. The band's new album is called New World Horizon. You can catch them Thursday night in Fort Collins and Saturday night in Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The word miracle is thrown around a lot, but it seems like the right word to use about the crash of Flight 217. In December 1978, a passenger plane with 22 people aboard left Steamboat Springs for Denver. It went down in a blinding blizzard on Buffalo Pass. The crash and the monumental rescue that followed are the subject of a new book, Miracle, on Buffalo Pass. Author Harrison Jones is with us from his home near Atlanta. Also with us, First Officer Gary Richard Coleman. And gentlemen, welcome to you both. Good morning, Ryan. 
Thank you for having us. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, Gary, we'll get to the backstory of this in a moment, but um, I want to point out that it may have been snow that saved your life, acting as a sort of airbag. Can you explain how snow may have saved your life during the crash? Uh, yes, I can, I think. Um, when the cockpit separated from the body of the aircraft, the snow, I was the lowest pilot. We came in on our right side. I'm, a, I'm the co-pilot, so I was on the right side of the aircraft. It scooped snow in as we were stopping. It effectively gave me a snow bag instead of an airbag. Scott, on the high side of the airplane, really had not too much in front of him, and that's why he suffered uh, some of his uh, dynamic injuries. And this is this is the pilot of the aircraft who died in the yep, crash. Scott Klopfenstein. Scott Klopfenstein. And so snow, yeah, served as, as something of a, of a protector for you. Uh, let, let's step back. So this crash took place December 4th, 1978. Uh, it was a propeller plane known as the Twin Otter. And Harrison, I'm curious how you came to know about Rocky Mountain Airways Flight 217. Yes, Ryan. Uh, I have, I've written several fiction books, and uh, evidently Gary had, written, had read one of the books, and his daughter contacted me via email. And Kelly... Um, told me about her dad's story and asked me if I'd be interested in, in writing about it. So she introduced me to her dad, and Gary and I got together and uh, visited the crash site in uh, the fall of 2016, I guess it was. And we decided that if we could contact enough people to, to uh, get the story and make it historically correct and accurate, that we would do it. And contacting enough people wasn't I suppose, too terribly difficult, given the number of survivors. Is that right, Harrison? Well, with 20 survivors, um, the problem, the only problem we had was it's been, it's been 39 years since it happened. Mm-hmm. So we had to track down a lot of people, and we were able to do that uh, primarily through social media. Gary's wife, Debbie, and his daughter, Kelly, were very, very helpful in, in uh, helping me do that. We were able to track down almost half the passengers and almost all of the rescue personnel. So, Gary, your daughter is the one who really got the ball rolling on this project. My understanding is that you really didn't talk much about the crash, about having survived it. Uh, what, what changed your mind? Well, I now have a little better understanding of some of the World War II vets, my dad included, that never, ever talked about what they went through. And it was not something that I had... I just didn't care to talk about it very much. And my, I talked to my family, and my daughter told me one day, said, Dad, your story is starting to change a little bit. Let's get this written down. Uh, memory can be deceiving sometimes, huh? Yes. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the crash itself in more depth. Uh, this was a route you were familiar with and had flown many times without incident. So Steamboat Springs to Denver. When did you and the captain realize there was a problem on that snowy night? There are highways in the sky called Victor Airways. We were flying east on Victor 101, and there's an intersection in the sky and which uh, you have to be at a certain altitude. We could not climb out of 13,000 feet going east, and of course going east 
there are obstacles in the way that are much higher than 13,000 feet. We, at that point, we had taken off from Steamboat and with moon and stars were out and we turned around to go back to Steamboat because we could not make our MOCA minimum obstacle clearance. And this is a function of ice, correct? Um, This was primarily at that time downdrafts that were unforecast that were coming out of the west. We had about a 70 70 mile an hour wind out of the west in that evening. Huh. And uh, so you had turned to go back to Steamboat, uh, but you just weren't able to keep up your altitude. Is that right? Yeah. And when you turn, when you turn an aircraft, especially when you're trying to climb and you're at a slower speed, you lose some vertical component of lift. And that put us down another, oh, maybe another hundred feet. And we picked up a little bit of ice and... But we had flown over all of this icing and downdraft when we went to Steamboat because we were already at altitude. When did you know that you weren't going to be able to stay in the air? (laughs) Uh, When we hit the tower. Tell me about the tower. (laughs) Well, these big um, steel towers that transmit a lot of uh, voltage uh, go over the crosses Victor 101, which is our highway. And we could not see the end of the wings for snow and ice. We actually flew into this cloud because we were a few feet lower than 13,000 feet. And that, the severe icing along with the severe downdrafts, uh, we had about 10 knots between stall and top speed. We were trying to climb. <sighs> <laughs> this is still hard to talk about. Yeah, and like we did hit the uh, about five feet in from the end of the right wing. We hit this tower, started an immediate right turn because we had hit the tower, and there was a dark spot in front of us, and there was a white spot to the right of us. You and aimed for the white spot because you figured it was snow and would be softer. Well, that's one of the things you learn when you're flying. If if you're going to make an emergency landing, you go to the light and not the dark. Huh. Harrison Jones, the passengers on board really had no warning that this was coming. Is that right? That's correct. And why was that? Uh, Gary, the, uh, the airplane uh, had a rudimentary public address system, and it did not have a flight attendant on board. Uh, the flight attendant was not required. Gary and Scott uh, basically had their hands full with the airplane and did not have time to make a a public address announcement. So the passengers were pretty much unaware that uh, the emergency situation existed. Gary, do you remember the impact? I'm, I'm always curious about that in crashes, how conscious you are when the worst of the trauma is occurring. No, I have no, no memory of the impact. Are you glad of that? I'm glad of a lot of things. What else are you glad of? (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about that. Uh, I'm glad that uh, we had such incredible passengers. We had such incredible uh, people that were on the rescue. Uh, There were about, I want to say, 10 to 15 little miracles that stacked up on top of each other that allowed all of the survivors of that uh, unfortunate evening. 
22 aboard and 20 survived. As you said, the pilot died, the captain died, that is, and one passenger. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about Miracle on Buffalo Pass. It's the story in a new book of Rocky Mountain Airways Flight 217, which crashed on the way from Steamboat to Denver, though they'd actually been turned back uh, to Steamboat when the crash occurred. And uh, when you came to, Gary, what do, what do you remember? I remember being angry. Angry? <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't move. Uh, they had dug me out uh, about three hours after. I was buried in snow for approximately three hours. They dug me out, and I was, still couldn't get my feet untangled. And I remember trying to get out and, and telling people that I could help. And uh, then there was just brief periods of time when I'm aware of, of where I was. It's the middle of the night. It must be freezing cold. And Harrison Jones, it's, it's really the passengers who come to that begin to, to help in the rescue. This is before first responders can arrive. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, fortunately, there were a few of the passengers who were not seriously injured. Everyone had injuries, but uh, some of them were not terribly injured. One of those was a young man named John Pratt, who was only 20 years old. John was an Eagle Scout and uh, had some training in survival. And um, he was able to help uh, most of the passengers through the night. Uh, John was able to get the baggage bin open, and he and another gentleman, a 19-year-old named Vern Bell, were able to dig out uh, the baggage and find clothing and blankets and and anything they could use to keep the people warm. So uh, the people who were not seriously injured helped those who were, and it was just an amazing story of, of character and integrity and courage and determination. They're just a wonderful bunch of people. Can you shed more light on on what they did to keep spirits up at that point? I mean, I can imagine Harrison and Gary uh, that spirits might have been awfully low. I think uh, probably the the young men, the John Pratt was only twenty, Vern Bell was only nineteen. Those two gentlemen showed extreme leadership and keeping spirits up and and. Uh, and just encouraging people and treating them as best they could with the rudimentary equipment they had. Um, I think it was just the leadership of, of John and Vern that, that really made a big impact on the survivability of the passengers. I understand they sung Christmas carols to pass the time. Gary, is that true? No, I don't, I don't have any memory of that. Okay. I can imagine that. Uh, there's, there's a lot of this, a lot of this middle section that I don't have much memory of. Harrison, is that account true? Christmas carols were sung to pass the time? That is true. Uh, Vern Bell related that to me. Uh, and the book is told primarily in the words of the survivors, uh, Gary and the, and the passengers who survived, and also the rescue personnel. And yeah, Vern Bell did, did uh, relate that in the book, that uh, he and some of the other passengers sang Christmas carols to pass the time and distract them from the, the uh, extreme circumstances that they were in. So rescue teams headed to the scene. Um, I think they got a, a snowcat to get up to the crash site. Some of them were coming from the front range, as I recall. And what were the extent of your injuries, Gary? And what was recovery like? The extent of my injuries? I was uh, 
um, <laughs> injured quite severely. I had um, I had heard that I had uh, a lot some frostbite. Uh, my hand was out of the snow for three hours, and I guess the temperature was in the minus thirty range, and it snowed approximately anywhere from six to eight feet that evening. My goodness. Uh, how 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 did the rescue go down, Harrison? Um, the rescue went down uh, due to the fact that the airplane did have, well, first of all, they were in contact with uh, air traffic control, and air traffic control obviously knew that they had a problem when they lost contact. The airplane had a uh, ELT, an electronic locator transmitter on board, and uh, so that, that uh, sent the signal that the airplane was down. The Civil Air Patrol in Colorado was notified, and uh, the gentleman made by the name of Jim Awesome led his ground search and rescue team, and they followed the ELT to find the area. Hmm. The gentleman by the name of Dave Lindau was in Steamboat Springs. He heard about the crash, and uh, Dave had the only privately owned snowcat in the area, and he very graciously volunteered his snowcat and himself, and uh, he and a gentleman named Ed Duncan loaded it up and hauled it over Rabbit Ears Pass and into the search area. And I understand that when rescuers arrived, they were surprised by all of the life, because it's so rare that there are this many survivors. And uh, just in the last 10 or 15 seconds here, I wonder, Gary, do you, do you maintain a relationship with the survivors? Oh, Yeah. That yeah. uh, we had a 30-year reunion, and we just, uh, of course, we just had a, a a major book signing and dinner where all the people reacquainted themselves with each other. Well, thanks for sharing this story with us. We appreciate it. You're totally welcome, and and may this uh, book be a, a a nice thing for many families that need to have nice things happen at Christmas time. We spoke with Gary Richard Coleman, who was first officer when the plane went down Rocky Mountain Airways Flight 217 40 years ago between Steamboat Springs and Denver, and Harrison Jones, who's author of this new book, Miracle on Buffalo Pass. You can see photos from the era at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It was December 1994 when comedian Adam Sandler first performed the Hanukkah song on Saturday Night Live. In it, he sings about people who are and aren't Jewish. Well, as we were taping the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza, which airs tomorrow, the Andy Hackbarth Band offered their version of the Hanukkah song. Put on your yarmulke, here comes Festival of Lights. Instead of one day of presents, we have a crazy nights. So when you feel like the only kid in town without a Christmas tree, here's a list of people who are Jewish, just like you and my brother-in-law Craig, who's here tonight. David Lee Roth, Lights the Manola, so do Kirk Douglas and the late Donna Shore. Guess who eats together at the Carnegie Deli? Bowser from Shannon and 
Denver's Andy Hackbarth Band playing the Hanukkah song by Adam Sandler. It's a taste of the Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza, which airs tomorrow. I hope you'll join us. And that's our show for today. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. Harrison Ford's recorded to it. Not too shabby. Some people think that Ebenezer Scrooge is. Well, he's not, but guess who is? All three stooges.